Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Josh Marshall podcast. You've probably been watching some of these uh, January 6th committee hearings. We had another one uh, yesterday where we ha- I was going to say it's 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 the one with a, a panel of Republicans, but that's not going to distinguish it from anything. I'm not even sure there have been any Democrats on any of these on any of these panels. Now, you had the uh, uh, voting worker and her mother in yesterday's hearing who, you know, would be there and in, in, I guess, notionally nonpartisan, have no idea uh, what their political affiliation is. I mean, African-American women in Georgia suspect they're probably Democrats, but that's obviously not what not what they were there for. They were there as, you know, there as as being basically collateral damage in um in Trump's, you know, war against the election. And as as we've seen, one of the one of the standard parts of that has always been uh, you know, sicking his sort of feral mobs on these people. And I don't think there is a case during the 2020 you know everything that came out of the 2020 cycle, where anyone uh, tied to the big lie thing was actually, you know, injured or attacked. But obviously, you're getting all these, you know, you're you're getting flooded with like death threats and people kind of, you know, coming, you know, hanging out around your house with their long guns and shit like that. Uh, that's not going to be not going to be fun. And you know, one of the things that came out in that. In the hearing yesterday, was that the mother of the election worker? You know, the FBI called her one day and said, "Hey, you you got to get out of your house. You got to you be, you know you have to go into hiding." And she was you know didn't wasn't living in her house for a couple months. Um, but in any case, you know, but with the elected officials, you've got this guy, Speaker of the House, out in Arizona, and then the Secretary of State in Georgia, and and he's the one who. You know, has been a pretty central focus of the story, really, pretty much since the beginning. I, I think that at least news reports came out about Trump's strong arming him to find "quote unquote" you know eleven thousand votes. Pretty much, that was kind of contemporaneous, I think, with when it happened. I'm not sure we heard the recording then, but we knew about that stuff then. And and you know, it's 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 a funny thing where it's you know a bipartisan committee. Where the people on the dais are Democrats and the people appearing before the committee are Republicans, and it's a it it's a funny thing because you know with with the the guy from Arizona, the Speaker of the House of of you know their Speaker of the House, State House of Representatives, uh, it was very powerful testimony, you know, 
pretty, not quite sure how to put it, you know, I wasn't going to lie. I wasn't going to break my oath. And there was a lot of interesting stuff there that sort of had a lot of, uh, you know, kind of LDS uh, Mormon Mormon Church subtext about not. I mean, for for I think for many of us, we're just not going to break the law. We're not going to like subvert an election. But clearly, uh, for him, there was this extra dimension about one's oath, which for him is an oath is a promise to God in addition to you know the civil context. But one one thing that I wanted to sort of flag our attention to is. You know, a lot of this stuff is is not new, or not totally new. Uh, you know, we've known basically uh, Raffensperger's. You know, the guy in Georgia, his story, as I said, since since pretty much the beginning. We're finding out more and more about this fake elector plot. But one thing that I'm struck by is, you know, you had this thing what came out yesterday. You know, Ron Johnson's office was involved in kind of you know trying to get the the list of fake electors to Mike Pence. So you've got you've got members of Congress, you know, participating in this uh conspiracy. And a bunch of reporters went to kind of ask Johnson, you know, he's just walking walking to his car or something like that. And it was very striking to me because he's like, oh yeah, there was a some intern, you know, I don't even know who. They they did it. You know, like, okay, that 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 doesn't make any sense. But it was striking to me you sort of see what's getting traction when people don't want to answer questions and people are like scurrying away from reporters. And it's kind of hard to figure sometimes because there's so much in this story that, you know, almost everything in this story should be a career ender for the people involved. And yet we've seen, you know, someone comes up like, oh, you know, this is the time that I told them to just throw away some votes or find some new votes. Or I came up with this list of phony electors and all this kind of stuff. And you're just like, wow, that's 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 pretty bad. And the people in question are sort of, yeah, but you know, we thought we won or we fraud or, you know, something or other. But some of this stuff seems to be getting some different kind of traction that I have been, that I at least have been used to uh, over the last, you know, year, year and a half or however long it's been. And so that's interesting to me. Uh, I think I said in one of our earlier episodes that the real, I, I think, threshold or goal that I think the committee is trying to accomplish is to put put the country back into that mode that it was in for about a week after the insurrection happened. When everybody was like, okay, this is too much. This is enough. You know, there have to be consequences, all that kind of stuff before everybody just kind of got used to it. And, and, and everybody decided it was fine and you have to move on and stuff like that. And I think that they've done, I think they've had some progress in that. It does feel a little different uh, right now. Now, it felt a little different then. And then that subsided. So I think the country is in some ways in kind of a struggle to see whether the Republican malefactors involved in this or the larger number of elected Republicans who did not take a direct role themselves, but have been happy to say it's fine ever since and want to move along to the next thing. It seems that seems a little that seems a little different now. And it's, you know, are we going to are is the rest of the country going to give them time to kind of wait this out? 
and have it go back to just being normal stuff or not. Uh, and that is where I think we are. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about um, talk about guns. This thing actually seemed to have happened. Uh, and a piece that uh, Kate, my colleague, has out about, uh, well, you know, the demise of Roe and what that might mean for the District of Columbia, where, as we know, Congress is Congress is in charge, even though they've got this kind of, you know, nominal local government that, that Congress can overrule at will if it wants to. Uh, remember, before we get to that, it's hot. It's actually not here. To, it's not hot today here in New York City. I don't know what's going on. There was, you know, my, my, my younger son graduated from middle school on Friday and it was like, it was like 90 degrees where his graduation, luckily it was on the, it was kind of right on the Hudson river. So there was some, you know, some breeze or whatever, uh, but it was like 90. And then the next day it was 60. It was crazy, crazy. I've never seen, I've never, I, I, I've never seen undulations like this in the temperature. And today it's kind of uh, back near there, uh, at least here in New York city. In any case, what it says in the ad, ad copy is it's hot, like too hot to put on real clothes and shoes to go out for a nice coffee. But that doesn't mean you have to suffer without something delicious and cold to sip on. Get a Grady's cold brew beanbag kit delivered to your door and enjoy smooth, silky iced coffee without ever leaving the house. Each kit makes 36 glasses of iced coffee, which means you'll be ready to weather even the worst heat waves. And with the price tag of just a buck a cup, you'll have money left over to splurge on a kiddie pool. Ready to feel the chill with every sip? Get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. Okay, Kate Riga, what are we what are we talking about? Well, I do I do want to mention just a couple things about the Ron Johnson story that I dearly love, including that when he was like fleeing from the reporters, he was pretending to be on the phone, which is a very common senator. And someone dodge. called him on it. Yeah. And someone's like, <laughs> I can see the screen of your phone, which bold. Uh, yeah, I enjoyed that, is, that. That is bold. Yeah. Um, but also just the extent to which people like him who were involved on some level have not even like bothered to come up with a cover story is almost comical you know like the story he's peddling expects us to believe that you know as someone as low down as an intern his office is like carrying water for them and like contacting the vice president's office all without his knowledge you know and apparently at no higher ups direction just you know this intern is involved and so they just did what the intern said and as someone who has been a capitol hill intern at a senate office i can tell you that i did not have that particular sway um you know my day was largely spent putting together every press mention of the senator that happened during the day. That was largely the extent of my authority was that one specific binder. So <laughs> it's just like... Yeah, even, even the idea that you would push send on a piece of email coming from the office is is oh no close to absurd in it in itself it's it's so deeply ridiculous and everybody knows it's ridiculous yeah yeah and it's just like no concern about culpability no we need to kind of weave together some you know, a plausible deniability here. It's just kind of like, I got to go. I'm on the phone. And reporters are like, well, you're not. And he's like, well, the intern made us do it. The unnamed intern. Goodbye. <laughs> so. Hilarious. Yeah. Hilarious. So, you know, 
This is, it's kind of interesting to have this conversation because Josh, you've been watching the hearings very closely. Um, I have not been watching them because our colleagues, Matt and Josh, it's, they're kind of handling it for TPM. You know, I've been covering other things. So it's interesting because I'm, you know, reading up on everything afterwards and kind of catching up on the the stuff that I can't watch during the workday is like, it's just such a weird experience because like you mentioned in the intro, I think a lot of the point of this is the emotional impact, you know, especially with those poll workers, but even, you know, Raffensperger and Rusty Bowers, there's in all of them, there's this very hearty dose of Trump's lies are, it's not a victimless crime. You know, there's all this collateral it leaves behind. And in that way, it feels kind of similar to the second impeachment that that those video clips, you know, that we'd never seen before and the Mitt Romney running away and all that kind of stuff. It, it hits you in a way that maybe just reading the black and white facts of the case doesn't because that's how you see the emotional human toll this stuff took. And I think that's a really interesting dynamic because in a situation where the new stuff that we're learning, at least so far, is coming more in these sewn together nuggets rather than like some big massive bombshell it does create you know not watching it it's just it's a weird experience because I'm I'm not getting the emotion firsthand and so then you're just kind of like picking through kind of what facts are new or what facts are maybe expansions of facts we had before and you're just missing all you know the theater of it which I would you know, you correct me if I'm wrong, but which seems like a, a large part of the point of these. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely um, Raffensperger's testimony was strong, but we've seen that a lot, right? Mm -hmm. We've seen a lot of him. We know a lot about his story. I didn't know a lot about this, you know, Speaker of the House out in Arizona, his story. Um, I hadn't heard the election worker story from them. I've heard, you know, I've, I've mm -hmm. seen reports on it. Um, so those were powerful. Um, I, you know, I guess at some level, what I, what I try to bring it back to is bad things happen to people all the time that they don't deserve. And a lot of the people up on those stands did not deserve the harassment, the this, the that. But I think it's also important to bring it back to the big deal is that they were trying to kind of change the result of an election. And that is something that concerns all of us. And, you know, for all the different reasons we know. So I think it was it, the testimony kind of, you know, brought it home in a powerful way. But something that I've had a few people say to me, and, and I, I think is true. And I, and I think it is in a way more powerful than the, you know, kind of human toll testimony is that, you have these visuals where you have the committee, which is, you know, uh, mainly made up of Democrats, but does have uh, Liz Cheney. And she's not a nominal Republican, uh, you know, up there. And you have a lot of very conservative Republicans being brought before the committee and they are answering to the committee. And I, I don't want to say they're like, subservient exactly because you know i i think they are you know the people who wanted to evade testifying basically were able to evade testifying and um it's also pretty clear the committee was not is not having anybody up there who's a hostile witness 
Mm. You know, they they did the video testimony. They can use that, but they're not looking for someone who's going to say, yeah, that happened, but Trump rocks and all, all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. But it's different in, in the sense you don't have Jim Jordan there kind of just spouting nonsense to kind of distract everybody. And you have, um, you know, you have these people who all voted for Trump. A lot of them want to vote for Trump again. And they are there sort of, you know, kind of calmly and directly, uh, you know, answering the questions of, you know, Adam Schiff, the arch enemy of Sir, right? Of, of, of the fearless leader, you know, the, the, the embodiment of, of, of lib evil. And it, it just, it, it creates a kind of, it creates a kind of visual where, it's kind of a no bullshit zone. You know, there, there, there's, there's, there's not a lot of both sides in. There's not a lot of excuse making. You can tell that, that, you know, I mean, these are all partisan Republicans, but these aren't people like, like Liz Cheney, who basically said, all right, I, you know, my polit- I'm not a Democrat, but my political career is over, basically. And it, that just has a certain that has a, a certain clarifying thing here because, you know, as, as much as we make fun of sort of both sides, you do want both, you know, you do want to hear both sides of, a, of an argument, but this is something that there is no both sides here. This thing happened and we, are we going to forget it happened or not? And so that, that to me is, that in a way has been the more, um, the more striking aspect of the testimony than the personal dimension of it. Because I could imagine what the personal dimension of it was without without the people telling uh, telling me directly. And I and I think the one other point there is, you know, in the second impeachment, you got you had something sort of like this, right? One side able to make its case, but they weren't able to get access to a lot of stuff. And they weren't able to show all the stuff they got access to. But in this case, it's pretty clear that the stuff that is in the possession of the government, they could really get pretty much everything they wanted. And it is also clear that, um, you know, a lot of people, you know, you talk about hostile witnesses, they played a brief clip of Rona McDaniel in yesterday's testimony, head of the head of the uh, Republican National Committee. Clearly, they were not going to have her come up because she would definitely be a hostile witness. But in those taped depositions, it's pretty clear that a lot of these people who are diehard Trumpers, under oath, they basically said what happened. And, and you piece that together and it, and it just it creates a, an imagery and a reality of the people trying to get to the bottom of this are calling the shots. And other people are obeying them and answering the questions. And that's just, that's different from a lot of the reality bending theater that we've seen over the last six years. One point of this that was gleefully spread around Twitter this morning um, was a Rusty Bowers quote. He's the, the speaker of the Arizona House. And he said something to the effect of, you know, I will support Trump if he runs again in 2024. And Raffensperger said the same thing. And the incredulity of the reactions makes sense because like Raffensperger in particular had to 
put his family into hiding and had to start their car remotely out of fear of car bombs. So it's it's a bit wild to, to see these men. And then Rusty Bowers, you know, was having all these protests at his house. And he said that there was some kind of arm to the hilt militia guy there. All the meanwhile, I guess his daughter was very ill and was dying at the time. And it, I think she subsequently passed away. Yeah, so, a few weeks yeah. after January 6th. And it's just, it does kind of like rock you back a little bit to see something like that. And it, it just reminds me of, you know, way back when during the 2016 campaign, I remember we were all kind of mocking Ted Cruz as this like craven outlier, you know, for kind of bowing to Trump after Trump had delighted and talking about how ugly his wife is and all this crazy stuff. And now you're just like, (laughs) no, people will do much more for the big man and still vote for him again. You know, turns out taking insults about your your spouse is is at the low end of the the gradient. Yeah, I mean, I think think with Bowers, I think, I mean, it's not much of a defense. But I think he said, you know, if it's Trump versus Biden. So he's not necessarily saying like Trump's his first choice. He's saying that he would not. Joe I mean, Biden that's, is so odious. That. Yeah, it's bad <laughs> enough. But it's, you know, it's, it's mm-hmm. again, just to give the, 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 the fullness of it. I mean, what strikes me in those is that, look, if, if, if you're in politics, politics and ideology is really important to you. And if it would, you know, it's going to take a lot to have you vote for someone of the opposite party, if that if that is your thing. And it certainly would be understandable to me if, you know, you might still vote a certain way if someone had really made your life personally very uncomfortable and miserable. Okay. But like he told you to 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 find to make up votes. That is the thing. I have a hard time getting past that. You want to you 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 want to support someone who said go out and like just print up some votes so I can win. Like that is the part I don't I don't get any universe where you say like hey, I put everything in the balance and he's still better. Whereas to me, it's different kind of like, you know, you made everybody hate me, you called me a weenie, you, you know, you, 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 you brought these militia people, they protested outside my house. I mean, those would turn off a lot of people, but I can at least see kind of like, you know, look, that doesn't make me not a conservative. That sucked. I really hate you. But like, I still want you to be president, not Joe Biden. I can at least kind of get my head around that you know, kind of my own personal whatever. But again, the printing up fake votes, I don't see how you get past that. Yeah. I, I, especially if you're in charge of running elections. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, right. you, know, <laughs> you know, you have one job. And you're, you're mid-election to do so again, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's th- that, that part, is, that part is, um, is hard for me to understand. I mean, you know, one, I wonder about the, I think with Bowers in his account, I think at least most of the time, the people he's actually dealing with who are telling him to do things that are illegal are like Rudy or Jenna Ellis. And I guess at some level, you kind of tell yourself, well, Trump didn't tell me to do it. Rudy did. And again, you really, you know, really kind of grasping your straws. But in Raffensperger's case, it's the president telling him directly, get me some fake votes. So like, 
you know, it's it's I, I won't stop giving him credit for the fact that he did not do those things. And he has been pretty open about what Trump did. You know, so so th- that's what he owes us. Who he votes for personally is kind of generally irrelevant to the big picture, but it's still it's it's still hard to get my head around. Yeah. I think the most interesting thing of the hearings to me are like the drips and drabs that come out about lawmaker interaction. And we talked about Johnson. The other thing that came up at yesterday's hearing was that Andy Biggs of Arizona, who's in the House of Representatives, called Bowers on the morning of January 6th, asking him to support, uh, you know, the decertification of the legitimate electors who voted for Biden. And that is you know, interesting, if not completely unsurprising, because Andy Biggs's name has come up quite a bit in these conversations. Um, but what do you make of this kind of triangulation on the certain lawmakers who were involved? Because that's something that even though reports have surfaced some of this, I mean, that was that's totally different from impeachment round two, when they purposefully went out of their way to kind of exclude Republican lawmakers from the blame right. so as to right. not alienate potential jurors in yeah. the in the impeachment and conviction. Yeah, I that whole part of it has been a bit hard for me to get my head around for a couple reasons. One is that I mean the fake electors thing is like really, really bad. Yeah. Having said that, though, it's not like anybody didn't know who the real electors are, right? I mean, it's 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 not like someone is going to be like, "Oh, you you gave me the fake list, and I put them in the, I put them through the elector machine, and now Trump is, pre-, you know." So <laughs> it's a little hard for me to distinguish it in seriousness from like everything else that happened. I mean, it's really bad, but it's not clearly a lot worse than other stuff happened. I mean, I guess that one of the reasons that it's gotten a lot of attention is that it involves making like attestations. This is a legitimate so so basically you're creating you're creating false documents in an electoral context. And so that may have legal consequences in a way that saying, "Hey, can't you find some more votes?" maybe more ambiguous. You know, the law works in funny ways. But what strikes me in part related to that is when these things came up in the testimony yesterday, you've got, like, I don't think Big said anything. I don't think he's answered any questions. And clearly it caught Johnson like off guard and he didn't have a good answer. And he's like running away. And so that gets my attention because like, oh, okay. You seem worried about that. You don't seem to have a good answer. And you seem a little concerned that you have been tied to that. And um, I don't know if that's the kind of thing where over a few days after a few, you know, appearances on Hannity, it'll become awesome and no one worries about it anymore. But something is different there. They're clearly, they're scared of being tied to that. And I am... I, I'm just I'm just very curious about what has them off guard on that point. I mean, again, maybe it's because for these technical reasons, it's something that violates a law more clearly than a lot of the other stuff. A lot of the other stuff, which in my mind is more serious. If you're saying stop the counting or just throw out the Biden votes, that's about as serious as it gets. And again, with with this fake electors thing, 
everybody knew who the real electors were. Everybody knew that there was no, that the real electors from Wisconsin were the Biden electors. So on the one hand, there's this, you know, kind of, we're going to keep it secret and, you know, kind of hide out in the state house and all this kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, everybody knew who the real electors were. I, I guess we will see. Yeah. You know, I, I get the sense that they, that they, that they think there's real legal vulnerability for them mm. on this one. And maybe that's just because, again, it basically involved um, saying, you know, I attest that these are the official uh, electors from the state of X or the state of Y. And that is, that's a false statement. You're, you are, you know, whatever the crime is for submitting false you know, false documents uh, uh, to the federal government, blah, 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 blah. And everybody who's involved is part of a conspiracy to do those things. And so everybody's kind of on the line for it. I mean, I'm not going to hold my breath for people to get charged, but something has these people spooked. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about something else that Congress is doing, which is um, last night, the Senate, well, a group of senators announced that they'd arrived at a deal on bill text of the, quote, Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, which is the uh, gun legislation in response to the most recent spate of horrific mass shootings. Um, A group of 20 senators kind of announced it, you know, 10 Democrats, 10 Republicans, and they took last night their their first procedural vote on the bill, which got 64 votes, which clearly a lot, clearly enough to overcome the filibuster. So everything kind of seems on a glide path to passage at this point, probably either this weekend or early next week. Now, was that technically the vote to start the debate or just a kind of a proxy vote for the vote to start? I mean, all these technical, you know, kind of procedural yeah, so things. We still have to come, you know, the the vote to end debate, which is the where the filibuster kicks in and then final passage. And then the House has to pass it as well. So. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. So just a little summary of what's in it is that basically what it does is it extends the time for background chat background checks of under 21. It doesn't prevent them from, you know, buying rifles, which is what Democrats wanted it to do, but it just gives longer time for background checks, spends a lot of money turning school you know, helping turn schools into army bases, basically like hardening security at schools and mental health stuff. And then the piece of it that almost kind of torpedoed the whole agreement was on red flag laws, this agreement to include boyfriends in the red flag law, which allows uh, people who have been convicted of domestic abuse to not be able to purchase firearms. But before that, it only ever applied to spouses and partners with whom the victim had children. And there was all this debate about, well, how do you define a boyfriend and what's, you know, a, a casual acquaintance and blah, and blah, and blah. So now they're including those people in these red flag laws. But the compromise is that, um, if the, you know, the quote unquote boyfriend who has been convicted of uh, some kind of domestic assault can't buy a gun for five years, but then can buy a gun again if they were only convicted on a misdemeanor and having committed more crimes since then. So that that's the bulk of it. That's yeah, I mean, that, that was the big thing. I remember uh, discussing this with some people that that was the big objection. Like, you know, you attack your wife one time. 
<laughs> and suddenly guns are over for you. And they didn't, and, and you know, I'm obviously sort of mocking the idea that that's like a big injustice, but that was the thing that kind of, that there had to be some sort of, uh, not statute of limitations, but you know, some limit that if you kind of, you know, clean up your act, you can have your guns back after five years. I mean, one thing that strikes me though, is that none of this um, comes into play though, unless you are convicted. Yep. Right. Okay. So mm-hmm. you have to be, so it's, it's not, um, if, if there's an incident, police are called, you know, let's just for the sake of conversation, say there's, there's, you know, no question that, that, that violence occurred, you would have to wait until charges are brought and there's a conviction before any of this red flag stuff even comes into play. Right. Right. So what about these cases? What about, what about the parts of these laws that I, well, I guess this is just for the domestic partner issue. Mm-hmm. What about the part of these laws that are supposed to be no conviction, just someone is, is, might kill themselves or someone, a judge decides that there are sort of exigent circumstances that something a judge, you can show a judge and the judge says, okay, you, you gotta, you gotta, you know, kind of hand your guns in until this at least blows over. Is that in here, or is that just a part of red flag laws that are mm-hmm. that that this you know doesn't apply here? So the bulk of the red flag stuff, which you know addresses the stuff you're talking about in this bill, it's mostly just funding for states to funding that gives states more incentives to like enforce whatever red flag laws they have on the books. Got it. Got so, it. Okay. And so okay, the thing that I am conflicted on is like on the one hand, you're like great. It's something, right? I mean, how many mass shootings have happened where there's been absolutely nothing? This is clearly better than that. But then on the other hand, I keep going back to my cigarette obsession as an analogy with this. And it's like, there was some paltry regulation, you know, early on that a a pro-tobacco Congress agreed to because the tobacco lobby, like, wasn't that concerned about it. And that was putting a Surgeon General's warning on the packets and not letting them uh, do certain types of advertising for cigarettes. And it's like, not the lobby doesn't like it. I mean, no no corporation wants any regulation at all. But they were kind of like, eh, this phrase, this make the warning on the boxes makes smoking an informed choice of the smoker. And we can just advertise in other ways. So we don't like it, but we're not going to fight tooth and nail against it, you know? And that is kind of the sense that I get here too. Like the NRA opposes us, obviously, don't like any regulation. But almost none of this interferes with the purchasing of guns at all, which of course is the lobby's biggest motivator. They exist to sell guns. And so when you kind of go through it and see in what ways are people barred here from buying guns, you have the people who are the domestic abuse people who, as you pointed out, have to be convicted, which you know, for reasons that are, I'm sure, obvious to all of our readers, you know, tons of domestic abuse never goes to trial, including that in a lot of situations, the victim is either financially or in some other way dependent on their abuser. But so you have that. Those people would be banned from buying guns for at least a certain amount of time. So that's like a tiny maybe cut into the gun bottom line, right? And then the other thing you have is that they basically are upping the ante for illegal third party gun sellers. So people who didn't kind of go through the hoops to be uh, get whatever licensing they need and to be an official seller. And it, it increases criminal penalties for them. So maybe you can, you know, maybe that'll dissuade more people from selling guns illegally. 
But other than that, and this is how Republicans have been selling the bill as well, you know, this will not infringe on Second Amendment rights. This will not take guns away from people. You know, this is just common sense kind of nibbling at the edges, basically, is what it is. Right, right, right. Yeah, no, I've seen, you know, a lot of and we have one question that maybe we'll just refer to it or maybe we'll do it as like a, you know, a, a red question. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know. But um, we have a lot of questions where basically where people say, you know, I, I'm wondering, isn't this a win for Republicans? Right. You know, they kind of they didn't really have to give up anything on, as Kate says, there's nothing here that says, you know, now you have to be 21 to get a long gun or maybe you know, you can only get, you know, kind of such such and such a high capacity magazine, mm-hmm. nothing. There's nothing here that prevents the same age group of people from basically getting any of the guns and all that kind of stuff. And so haven't Democrats sort of, you know, given Republican some breathing, Republicans some breathing room that, ah, they took action on the right. gun issue in exchange for nothing. And I, look, I, I fully grant that, I mean, it is, this seems to me about as close to nothing as you can get without being nothing. It's sort of Zeno's, you know, Zeno's gun regulation, right? You can kind of continue getting closer and closer. Um, but having said all that, I don't really buy this idea that it, it gives the Republicans a win and all this, all, all this kind of stuff. I, I really think that's totally wrong. And, and for that reason, I think it's fine. I think it's good. I mean, it's very weak, but I, st- I think it's still a step forward. And, and I base that thinking on really two points. One is that they don't need any breathing room. They are fine just saying, no, more guns, more guns, more guns. They are not, you know, they have shown that very, very uh, clearly. So this is not a case where Republicans are sort of going to Democrats and saying, hey, we're taking heat here. You gotta get, you know, you gotta gotta cut us some slack here by by coming up with a meaningless uh, compromise. They're just not. They're just not. And the the sort of the second idea here is that I think people think, well, this will kind of take the pressure off. You know, they can say, well, we've taken action on the terrible gun, you know, the terrible uh, uh, kid massacre issue in our country. But I don't think that's how I don't think that's how this played. And to go back to to Kate's point about the very slow, um, you know, war against cigarette consumption, it wasn't really well for most of the period in which people were struggling to change the equation on cigarettes. It was not any kind of restrictions or bans or anything like that. It was slow incremental stuff that just changed the attitude about Mm -hmm. the things themselves. And to me, I think the big step here is that something happened as tiny as it was. And that validates the idea, you know, surprising as it may be, that when you've got too many gun massacres, you should, you need to do something about it by legislating about guns. I, I think it validates that incredibly obvious uh, premise. And so I don't think it makes, I, I do not think it makes more legislation in the future less likely. I think it makes it more likely. Now, I'm not saying it's a lot more likely, but I do think that it makes it slightly more likely. And frankly, that is why 
most Republicans have this attitude of no, absolutely nothing. It is not really a point about rights. It is, I think, an accurate analysis of the politics that where you fight is on the absolute point, nothing. And once you start of, and once you say, well, okay, maybe we need to tight up, tighten up this background check thing, and uh, maybe if you're, you know, if your if your boyfriend is threatening to shoot you, that even if you don't share a child, cohabit, or 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 are not legally married, maybe it's still relevant, you know. So I, it's it's very very small, but I think it's a positive, both substantively and politically. Yeah, I do. I want to read out the question from Joe that we're um, already answering here. But he said, you know, he wanted to get our thoughts on this new framework, gut check, if he's being wildly pessimistic, cynical or defeatist, because he thinks it looks like a win for the GOP. I don't see much in the framework that addresses the root problem of too easy access to guns overall. It appears pretty toothless and then made the point that it could give Republicans a political win. And, you know, like Josh says, I think we we very much agree with the the analysis that this does almost nothing about, you know, staunching the flow of guns into American society. It's very, very marginal. Um, I think the thing that's going to be most irritating to me personally is that Kirsten Cinema, who is part of this group, is now going to, I'm sure, wave this around to show why the filibuster is great and keeping it's important and look at what she did even while the filibuster was in place, you know, putting aside the fact that if there was no filibuster, we would even Joe Manchin can involved, we would probably still have something a little bit stronger than this. Um, but I don't know. I don't know where I come down in the, does this make future legislation more or less likely? I agree with you that the kind of idea that Republicans needed to look reasonable on gun violence, uh, that one doesn't seem to hold much water with me because like you say, I think Republican voters, for the most part, are pretty happy with an absolutist stance on the Second Amendment. I also, you know, caught up in my cigarette thing again. But when the Congress did these kind of like toothless moves on on cigarette regulation, that's all they did for the next 30 or 40 years until the culture had changed enough that then the federal government kind of came jogging along behind to be like, yeah, us too. We don't like smoking everywhere, too. Um, I think... Yeah. And, and and yeah, if I make one point, my point is not that it that it makes it a lot more likely, or maybe more than trivially more likely. Mm-hmm. I think it is slightly more likely than less likely. The idea that it makes things less likely, I think, is wrong. Okay. It may be yeah. just a, a, a infinitesimally more likely, but it's at least not a negative in that in that yeah. context. I'd agree with that. Um, I think. One kind of a beltway framing that's already coming out, which I think very much sucks, is, you know, what was it about this time that spurred action that broke a half a century gridlock on on gun laws? You know, which, first of all, is painting with, I think, much too optimistic a brush. You know, I mean, I guess you could say that about literally anything you pass. But to me, this feels a lot more reminiscent to the Trump administration doing that bump stock ban after what was it the pulse shooting? Um, no, I think it was, it was of, after the one in Las Vegas. Yeah. Okay. Well, it was one of the, pulse hu- was, the huge pulse ones. was actually before he was president. Yeah. I, I think, think you're right. You know, that is actually the pulse shooting horrible as it sounds is actually the origin of appreciate the congrats. 
Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah, it was it was basically he goes on Twitter and says, just like I said, the Muslims are going to be killing us. I predicted this. I mean, no it, you know, obviously, this is in his voice. It was not the mm-hmm. Muslims. Right. Um, and then and then in response to people saying, yes, sir, you, you called it. And he's like, appreciate the congrats. Anyway, <laughs> meaningless wow, digression. There. Yes. Yes. So, but, um, but it was before he's president. But it does, it feels like the bump stock thing to me because that too was kind of the subject of like fervent, you know, back and forth. And then when it happened, and I I believe it was just unilateral through the administration. I think that was it, that, that, that the, the position in Congress was like they weren't, it's sort of telling in a way, they weren't objecting to it. And even the NRA was sort of passively mm-hmm, exactly, okay with exactly. it on, on the substance. They just didn't want it to be law. So they were kind of like Trump, take care of it as an administrative right. thing. But that too, it was, I remember in the immediate aftermath was covered as like in a huge sea change, you know, a Republican president is passing some gun regulation, which is like factually true, but also just you know, again, it, it was just these this small bore measure that the NRA only kind of half heartedly cared about anyway. Um, and I don't think that it says profoundly much more than that about, you know, the party shifting on gun rights or becoming more accepting of gun regulation. Like there's no evidence in in that or in this bill that that is the case. We are just seeing a willingness from some contingent of Republicans to agree to some kind of small bore measures that do some marginal fixes, but, you know, none that meaningfully kind of take a bite out of the gun crisis that we're experiencing right now. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think a key point is how Democrats uh, react to this, discuss it in a political context. You know, you have, I mean, you know, screw Kirsten Cinema, but you got Chris Murphy, mm-hmm. who without being a filibuster lover, clearly is very committed to this and was willing to give up a lot to get something to move forward. He's from Connecticut. I assume his a lot of his a lot of his focus on this comes out of Newtown. Yeah. Um but I I think the way to approach it is it is it is worth Democrats leaning into that first time or first time in a long time thing. Because I think the way you want to approach it is to say, hey, we've been held up. You know, Republicans have been saying no to everything for 25 years. We finally basically kind of got them to admit that something has to happen. Mm -hmm. This was way too little, but like first step, first step, and now we need to do more. They, you know, to sort of now that that is a creative way of looking at it, but it's not an inaccurate way of looking at it. And I think you need to approach it in a way that is not in a in a political messaging context is not defeatist and attacking mm-hmm. Chris Murphy and attacking Chuck Schumer and and everybody because this is clearly all they all they could get. Um, but also approaching it as. What's the victory here? It's not this kind of thing like, well, if you've only been on three dates and and you've only slept together once, you can still, you know, all this kind of ridiculousness about who's a boyfriend and stuff. It is, we passed a bill and we've been getting no for 25 years, but we broke that freeze out. And now we've kind of, everybody kind of, everybody is 
conceding. We need to legislate about this. This was the first step. We're going to be back at it, you know, back at it tomorrow, back at it in the next Congress. Now, again, that is a that is one interpretation about what happened, but it is a it is not a false interpretation, and it's the interpretation that allows you to take the win, albeit a very slim one, and set up what the next step is. And the next step is like, oh, glad we solved the gun thing. <laughs> Obviously, that's not it. But there's a way to do this, and I hope they do approach it that way. Honestly, I think while that spin is still you know, creative to some degree, I think it's more accurate than what I am sure we are going to soon see a flurry of profiles and courage about John Cornyn coming coming to his senses on the gun crisis, you know, so yeah, everyone's ab- been in. <laughs> yeah, ab- absolutely, absolutely. And, and, you know, you have to, um, we, we hear a lot of nonsense these days about narratives and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the, the, you know, where, where it becomes often a, a synonym for lying. Right. <laughs> kind of sort of sort of elaborate mm-hmm. lies. And in in political messaging terms, often and in a very positive and ethical way, it is about taking the scattering of facts that can mean anything. Is this just one meaningless mini law that will be passed and, and, you know, will have nothing to do with anything else that happens for the next 50 years? Or is it a first step that at least gets Congress back to legislating about something and is more like the cigarette thing? Mm -hmm. A lot of these narratives are like, what do we want it to mean? What is the future we are hoping for? How do we want to line them up? to move forward in the in the direction we desire. So those things are, you know, those things are um those things are important. Yeah. So in our last few minutes, um let's talk about this story I wrote, which is basically just about the precarity of abortion rights in DC, which I think is surprising to people who aren't thinking about DC statehood all the time like I am, which is that DC is one of, if not the most liberal city in the United States. You know, I I looked it up and almost laughed because 92% of the city's votes went to Joe Biden in 2020, which is like some real North Korea numbers. Um, And the thing is, Congress has immense control over the city's self-governance. And traditionally, they've done that by kind of restricting how the district can use its money because it's much easier to tack on an amendment to the appropriations process than to whip up fresh legislation and get it past the filibuster and get it through Congress and everything. So that's how they've traditionally done it. And attempts to curtail the district's abortion access, which is some of the least restrictive in the country. I mean, it happens like clockwork. I talked to Eleanor Holmes Norton, who's the the longtime non-voting uh delegate to the house for DC. And you know, she said she's expects it every year and it's always time to the march for life. That's when they do these kind of symbolic things. But they've also worked before, you know, since 1988 there's been a rider on DC's budget almost every year that prevents the district from using taxpayer money to subsidize abortions for low-income women on Medicaid. I mean, that's almost always a part of the city's laws. Um so the concern and, is, and, and yeah. to be clear here, that's because unlike states, DC does not have taxing authority in the way that so the so the federal government basically has to kind of appropriate money right. 
to, to function mostly is their budget. Right. So the concern from local leaders that I talked to is that, you know, everyone and their mother is painting the midterms as what's going to be a disastrous shellacking for Democrats. So if Republicans retake Congress and this will you know, we assume be post row falling, which is expected in the next few weeks that, you know, they'll target the district and because it would be this feather in their cap if they're not able to ban abortion countrywide to say, well, abortion is banned in our nation's capital. You know, it's not hard to see why that would be this big win for them. And then the concern, even while Biden is president until at least 2024, is that this won't happen in the form of a standalone bill that's the D.C. bans abortion bill. You know, it would happen on a must pass funding bill that a Republican is like, well, we're going to add this on about abortion in the district, leaving Democrats with the choice to either kind of torpedo a whole necessary funding bill, maybe that needs to keep the government open or something like that. Yeah, it turns out to a government shutdown. Exactly. Or protect the district, which has, because of the disenfranchisement, has no voting power, essentially. Right, right. I mean, the one, and I mean, and I say this not to minimize it at all. I mean, the one small saving grace is that it's not a case like Texas, where if you are a, a, a poor woman in Texas, if Roe goes down, you've got, you're probably going to have to travel really far to, 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 to access any kind of abortion rights. There is the saving grace that the district is super small. It's mm-hmm. really easy to get into Maryland. I mean, for if for people who who aren't um, who haven't lived in the district, I mean, you, you it's kind of hard not to bump into Maryland or Virginia. Mm-hmm. I mean, with with Virginia, at least there's a river, right? So you kind of go for a bridge. So, and again, I say this not to minimize it, but that is there is at least ge- you know very close geographical. You get there on the subway, the you know mm-hmm. their equivalent of the subway, um, the metro. So there's that, but um, you know. You shouldn't have to live leave where you live, um, yeah. and yeah. So it's and it and certainly would not surprise uh, would not surprise me at all um, if the, I mean you could you could um, certainly wouldn't surprise me if if there's a Republican president and Republican Congress in 2025. But yeah, that would set up quite a battle um, mm-hmm. because do you you know. Do you shut down the government? I, you know, I, the politics of that are are complicated, and you, you know, sometimes it's not even just shutting down the government. It's it's you know, kind of defaulting on the debt. I mean, there's all sorts right. of things Republicans come up with that are 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 really truly catastrophic, especially if you're talking about um, you know abortion rights in what is geographically a very small area. Mm-hmm. You know, and Maryland's right there. And the hope of, you know, local leaders here is just kind of that this will put the statehood conversation back into the midterm bloodstream, you know, get people talking about it again. Because if abortion's coming to the fore as this like huge national issue, it's a pretty neat segue into, oh, and by the way, you know, DC has no means of protecting itself. So <laughs> just yeah. good thing to have front of mind here. No, absolutely, absolutely. And I, I think it's it's funny. I mean, I um I, I guess we will see, assuming that the Roe decision, the Roe invalidating decision comes down in the next couple weeks, give or take, mm-hmm. uh, whether that does sort of reignite that part of the of the midterm conversation. I, I, I certainly suspect it will. I think there's. it's also worth considering whether um, 
the six conservatives on the court have come up with some way in the interim to nominally not overturn Roe, Hmm. where you get something that is same difference, right? But is not, you know, but there is nothing in the, in the decision that says Roe is overturned. So you end up in this case where it, you know, it allows people, it, it changes the dynamics in some way. I mean, in, it's hard to know the pros and cons, but again, there are ways to do it where you have a totally illusory right to an abortion, you know, right to an abortion in the first week, you know, just things that are right. meaningless. Um, but technically it is not. And then, you know, you're going to have all this like, oh, you know, Coney Barrett and John Roberts, you know, kind of found a way to <laughs> to bridge the divide and all this kind of stuff. Um, yep. So that's what we have coming up. Uh, let me remind everybody uh, that the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. And I guess that's all we got for this week. Yeah. So we'll see you next. Later. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you listen. 